Well, good morning. I am. Um, <clears throat> I feel like we say it all the time, and I feel like every week it's it's new, while not being new, but just how much um, I enjoy being with you. Um, and singing the songs that we sing and, and reading the scriptures that we read. Um, encouraged by what we sing and encouraged by hearing you sing it. And reminding me of the reality that we are in this together. If you have a copy of scripture, go to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. We have been continuing along in Matthew. Um, Adam last week looking at 20. Um, continuing kind of that theme of humility. Um, and reminding us to um, live and look at life through the lenses of grace. Not um, fairness as we often call it. And, and in Matthew 19 and 18 we were drawn into that reality of humility in the life of those who are of the kingdom as well. Um, and today it starts out um, looking at the humility of Christ. But today we're primarily going to look, as we look at chapter 21, um, looking at this reality of, of the fruitfulness of those who are in the kingdom. That those who are of the kingdom will produce a fruit that and those who are not producing fruit are not of the kingdom. Um, Jesus seems to make that very clear in our text today. We're going to look at all of 21, um, but I'm going to read it as we get to the sections in teaching it, um, just, just to help that flow through a little better. So we're going to start in verse 1, um, read through verse 11 to begin. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And this is the word of the Lord. Um, would you pray with me this morning? Father, we acknowledge the goodness of your word and acknowledge our great dependency upon your spirit to give us understanding in it. Um, because while in our flesh we may can understand how this part goes with this part, um, we cannot produce spiritual fruit in our flesh. 
So, Father, we, we pray that um, your Spirit would produce fruit in us through, through your Word, would wound where wounds are needed, would heal where healing is needed, needed, um, and would do the work that you have promised you would work in those who are yours to conform us to Christ. Father, we, we pray and acknowledge our dependency upon you as we enter this time of studying your word together. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. Here we, again, somewhat transition out. Jesus is now entering into Jerusalem, and he's entering into Jerusalem um, in, in the week of Passover, going into um, what would be his crucifixion. This is what we call Palm Sunday, um, that we often acknowledge. We would recognize it the Sunday before we would celebrate Resurrection Sunday. And Jesus is going into Jerusalem. Again, he's already told the disciples multiple times why he's going to Jerusalem and what's going to happen to him while he's there. And he goes into Jerusalem, and they're on the Mount of Olives before they go into the city. And, and Jesus makes what seems like an odd request. Go into the village in front of you, and you'll find a donkey and a colt, just take it, bring it back to us. And if anybody says anything to you, in other words, if they say, hey, that's my donkey, right? Why are you taking my donkey? Just simply say to them, the Lord has need of it, and they'll let you go. Now, I don't want to belabor this because I don't think this is the main point of what's here, but if, if we read that, and, and I've, again, like so many things in the Scriptures, I fear we read it and it's lost on us because we've heard it and read it so many times. But to see the sheer um, omniscience of Jesus in saying, go to this place and there will be this donkey with this colt, take it. And by the way, if anybody says anything to you, just tell them I need it and they'll be okay with it. To see the sovereignty over this, to see the knowledge over this, um, just his control and ordaining over all of these things. But Jesus isn't just telling them to go do this just to randomly because he felt like riding in on a donkey. Right? Matthew points us to this reality of why Jesus is, is riding in on a donkey and what he is symbolizing in that, what he's fulfilling in that. He goes to Zechariah chapter 9, where it says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. If you look at the actual text there, in, in between, behold, your king is coming and humble, mounted on a donkey, it says, righteous and having salvation is he. This king being the king of salvation, this Messiah who was coming in, but he's coming in not on the, the white horse having conquered his enemies in some military battle. He's coming in humble and riding on a, a donkey. Not just a donkey, the coal. The, the foal of a donkey, a colt donkey. The symbol of humility. And yet Jesus, being this king, comes in in this humility, coming into the city. And they put the cloaks on the back of the donkey. The, the crowd begins to throw their cloaks on the road and cut branches and put in. If you look back at 2 Kings, this is what they did in 2 Kings 9. This is what they did when Jehu was anointed king. It says they immediately and spontaneously began to throw their cloaks down on the floor. 
There's some intertestamental writings that would point to this being done to a king who had won a military conquest and they would throw their cloaks down as he entered back into the city. We're not sure exactly why they are, but it seems to be pointing to them acknowledging some type of, of kingship of this one. And then singing out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes to the name of the Lord. They're quoting from Psalm 118, which is in the midst of the part of that psalm where it's speaking of the salvation coming from Yahweh. This is the day the Lord has made. And that's speaking to that day of salvation. And they're, they're singing of this one, seemingly acknowledge he is the Messiah. And if they, to some degree, and if they are putting these cloaks down because they are following this tradition of this militant king who has won the conquest, they have highly misunderstood why he entered the city. Jesus is not entering into the city as some military king coming to vanquish the foes of Israel. Jesus is entering the, king, or the city as the Messiah king who in his humility would give his life as a ransom for many as we saw last week in chapter 20. And we're flowing out of this section of the humility that is of those who are of the kingdom. And here we see it epitomized in Jesus. Riding humbly on a donkey that not only he created, but he ordained to be in a certain spot in a certain place who he controls over these things. And in whose humility... He is riding in on this donkey so that he may lay down his life for those who are his. Again, pointing us to Philippians chapter 2 when Paul is calling the church to be humble. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on to say he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we see this humble king entering into the city and entering in for the purpose of laying down his life in his humility. And again, the people singing from Psalm 118 pointing to this reality of him being the Messiah king for the salvation that comes from Yahweh. And we see Jesus here in his humility, but let us not let this humility cause us to no longer see that he is the king who is humble. Because after showing his humility, we go into the temple where Jesus cleanses us. And oftentimes, and we'll, we'll get to the temple section in, in just a moment, but oftentimes in, in I probably have a tendency, we always tend to, to swing one way or the other on these things. We see people who go too far this way, so we knee-jerk and we go too far this way. I'll give you, I may tend to knee-jerk on this. But we, we tend to see in our culture, and, and we even saw it with some things coming out of the news, there tends to be this idea of, of portraying Jesus almost to be this humble, pacifist, everybody's warm and fuzzy never speaks a cross word, never reprimands anyone, just everybody gather around Jesus and let's all sing Kumbaya and hold hands. And they, they tend to promote this humble king who rides in on the donkey and yet they leave him there in his humility and never allow him to be 
the king who reigns authoritatively. So while, yes, we see Jesus in his humility riding in on a donkey, let us not forget Revelation 19. Next time he is coming back and he is not riding on a donkey. He's riding on a white horse in a robe that has been dipped in blood and he is coming to vanquish his enemies. So yes, we see Jesus, the humble king. But in that, let us not forget that he is king. Which leads us to that we've seen the humility of the king and now we see the authority of the king which is going to continue through the remainder of the chapter even as we look at the fruitfulness of the kingdom. But look at verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So we see Jesus having entered in on the donkey in his humility and he goes into the temple. Um, We see this same event recorded in Mark. Um, Jesus enters the temple and, and in Mark, I believe it records him turning over tables. And here he overturned the tables and he drove out those who were the money changers and those who sold pigeons and those who bought and sold Jesus enters into the temple, this place as he is quoting from the prophets, saying, this is my house, should be called a house of prayer, and you make it a den of robbers. Jesus enters the temple, this place that is to be the epitome and the the symbol, the, the, the city on a hill of worship of Yahweh. Where his people go and they make sacrifices of worship to Yahweh according to the commands. And they go and they praise. And, and, and in Mark's gospel when it says my house is to be a house of prayer. It says of all the nations. Mark quotes more of the, the, the reference there. This idea that they are to be a, a, a place of worship and a, and a place of exalting of Yahweh. And a, a place of his people that would reach the nations. And yet Jesus walks into this place that is to be a place of prayer and of worship. And he sees people extorting the very sacrifices that are to be made for their own gain. He sees people who are setting up tables to exchange the money because this would have been Passover week. People would have been coming from all over. And and if you're going to make the right offering at the temple, it has to be according to the temple coin. And so they would exchange, which wouldn't be bad in and of itself if they weren't exchanging it at the rate they were exchanging at just to make money in their greed. And they've turned this into a market fair to extort And it make money off the back of the worship of God. They've turned this into a show. The very place that the worship is supposed to be. And they've they've turned it into a show. And Jesus, again, this king who is in authority. and, And we see they recognized him acting out of an authority. Because two sections later they come in and say, 
Who gives you the authority to do this? And Jesus, in His authority, for indeed He is the King who is sovereign over not just the worship, but the how of the worship. And He cleans house. And again, I gave a hard time for those who tended to put Jesus on the donkey and never get Him off, and they tend to just leave Jesus as the humble, passive, almost neutered of any power king. I think likewise people have abused this text of Jesus turning over tables and driving out the people of the temple as a knee-jerk of those who keep Him in humility and as an excuse for them to be a jerk sometimes. This is not Jesus just coming in flexing muscles. This is Jesus in His deity, in His authority, in His kingship, and in, in His humanity, in His zeal for the worship of God. Revealing to the people the show they have made of the worship of Yahweh. And He comes in and He drives them out. And then not just that, then the blind and the lame come to Him. Those who according to tradition of that time, and in some places even Scripture, would not have been allowed in past the, the, the Gentiles' court where everyone could go. They wouldn't have been allowed past that at all. And some not even there because of the devices they may have had to use, some commentators would say. And here they come to Jesus in the temple, and what does He do? He heals them. And then get this. And the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. Again, quoting back this praise to God for the Son of David, this Messiah. Their response is they were indignant. It's interesting the place they become indignant. And I, I think him turning over the tables and running out the money changers was part of it. But you would think that's where it would have come in and said, whoa, 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 whoa. And they would have been indignant. What gets them indignant is he heals a lame man, he heals a, a blind man, and children are singing praise to him. And they're like, that's it. Can't, can't deal with it. And they come to Jesus, do you not hear these? In other words, hey, are, are you going to do anything about this? Do you understand what they're saying to you? And then Jesus, again, using children, we've seen that in, in here as examples. Quotes from Psalm 8. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And he's quoting from the Greek Septuagint, which would have been familiar. If you go to Psalm 8, 2, in, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, it speaks of quietly uh, uh, the word praise there is different he's quoting from the the greek septuagint and the interesting thing there about what he's quoting of out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes is the context of yahweh raising up worshipers of himself jesus is referencing to them hey did you the, the pharisees are coming to him do you hear what they're saying to you and his response is to quote 8-2 about children and babies being raised up to the worship of Yahweh. And the other interesting thing about Psalm 18 is if you finish that sentence, or Psalm 8-2, if you finish that sentence, 
It says, because of your foes and to steal the enemy and the avenger. It's not in the text, but I have a hard time believing that they wouldn't have known that. That not only is he referencing this raising up worshipers of Yahweh and tying it to those who are worshiping him, he's also tying it into the psalm that at the end of it says, and this is because of the foes and the enemies looking at those who are opposed to him. Again, Jesus reveals he is not only the Messiah who is humbly giving of himself, but he is the king who is not only worthy of worship, but is authoritative over how we do it. But seeing where this goes after this, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time, it it seems that, that this is being recorded because it happened, and it's being recorded where it is to tie into where Jesus goes from here on out with the rest of the chapter. And that is the fruitfulness of the kingdom. That those who are of the kingdom will produce the fruit of the kingdom. And Jesus, in the rest of his teachings from here on out, I think is tying back to this event at the temple where we see those who profess to be the people of God, those who say they are the people of God, and those who on outward appearance have the quote-unquote worship of God, and yet it's all a show and there's no fruit in it. So we've seen the king of the kingdom, and now we see the fruit of the kingdom. And as we look at this idea of the fruitfulness of the kingdom, and Jesus is going to use that language throughout the next couple of teachings, I began to, to look back as where is, has fruit been something that's been common in the Gospel of Matthew? And it turns out it has been. And John in his teaching, in, John, in Matthew chapter 3, tells the Pharisees to bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew 7, 16 and 21, Jesus is teaching, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. Jesus in Matthew 12, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. And in Matthew 13, the parable of the four types of soil And Jesus, speaking of the good soil, said he indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold and another sixty and another thirty. Jesus in his teaching and John in his preaching would have been showing this reality that those who are of the kingdom will produce fruitfulness. And those who do not produce fruitfulness are cut off and thrown into the fire. Using the tree and language that Jesus would have used. But it's not just in in, in Matthew. John 15, I am the vine, abide in me and you will bear what? Much fruit. And Paul, and Paul in his writings, 
Um, there were multiple, but in Romans 7, 4, it says we were raised from the dead in order to bear fruit. We see this reality in this teaching in, in Jesus and Matthew and throughout the Gospels and in the Apostles' teaching that those who are of the kingdom, those who are in Christ Jesus, will bear fruit. And Jesus, in the, the, this teaching that flows out of this temple incident, which again, I would say is tying back to him teaching them what's going on in the temple, this fruitlessness that is taking place there, is showing to this reality that those who are a part of the kingdom will produce fruitfulness and how a lack of fruitfulness reveals that one is not a part of the kingdom and will be cast out. And Jesus, the first teaching we see in this flowing out of the temple incident is this um, miracle with the fig tree. I've not done an extensive study. I did read a couple people who said, so I'll take their word on it. This is the only negative miracle we see recorded in the Gospels. Meaning, it's not a positive miracle of someone who can't walk and they can walk and someone who's dead and they're now alive and someone who can't see and now they can see. Or there's no wine, now there's wine. Or there's no food, now there's food. This is a negative miracle of something was alive and now it's not going to be. Look at verse 18. And in the morning he was returning to the city and he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Jesus is walking down the road. He's hungry and he sees a fig tree. Now again, in Mark's account, he records the parallel passage. Just so if you're ever reading it, we can alleviate some things here. Um, Mark records that this was not the season for figs. Meaning it was not the season for them to be fully ripe. Not like it's the dead of winter and all the trees were bare. Because clearly not, this one had leaves. But by the tree being in full leaf, now I'm not a... A fig treeer, right? I don't. You want to ask me about Holstein cattle? You want to ask me about corn? Hey, we can talk. Figs we didn't do, right? But apparently, the idea of a tree being in full leaf in this way would indicate that it would at least have the beginnings of fruit on it. That even some of those could have been picked off and eaten in an immature stage. But this tree was all leaf. It didn't have anything to give. It gave the appearance of being a fruit-producing tree. It gave the, the foliage to say, I'm a healthy tree and I have, I have fruit on me, only to walk up and be completely disappointed with no fruit in it. And so Jesus' response may seem harsh. He curses the tree, no fruit come from you again. And in Matthew it says, and the tree fit, withered it once. Mark's account Jesus cursed it one day. The next day coming back, they saw the fig tree withered. I don't think there's a, a strain here. Um, Matthew's condensing it for the sake of the story where Mark broke it up with an event in between. Jesus or Matthew's condensing it together. And I think we can all agree, if I speak to a fig tree and tomorrow it's dead, we can say that's pretty immediate. Right? 
Um, and it doesn't have to be translated immediate as in snap of a finger. Um, but Jesus curses this fig tree because it gave the appearance of fruit and had no fruit. Again, this is placed and done and recorded coming out of the temple because it's pointing back to what's taking place in the temple. And what's taking place with the, the Israel as a whole, it would seem. Here they have all the foliage. They've got the temple and they've got the sacrifices and they've got the show. They've got the appearance of being fruitful. And yet you go to the tree and there's nothing being produced. And in that, Jesus shows what is the ultimate end for this display of foliage, so to speak, and no fruit. is ultimately the destruction of the one who does such a thing. While this is pointing to, I would argue, directly back to the temple in Israel, this, this reality and this truth is taught throughout the rest of Scripture and is not limited here. You can have all the foliage of, of being a quote-unquote God worshiper. But if there's no fruit, all the show does nothing for you. And I don't want to belabor this here because it's going to be a resounding theme throughout. But there's a stark danger of this in our own lives. We can play the part We can come to church and we can sit in churches and, and this may even be true of churches. We could come and we can, we can clap and we can sing and we can have the warm fuzzies and we can do our thing and maybe we even feel bad because I got, my t uh, got your toes stepped on. I never understood that after I would preach and people acted happy about that fact. But we, we can go through these experiences. We can do this thing. You can put on a show you can have all the leaves on the tree you want to have on it. But are you producing? Is the fruit of the kingdom being produced in you? And if the answer to that is no, it doesn't matter how many leaves you've attached to your tree, how many outward displays of, of being quote-unquote godly, if there is no fruit of the kingdom being produced in you, and we'll deal with what that fruit is as we, as we continue through the text, then you are not of the kingdom. And then Jesus, uh, I, don't, I don't want to spend too much time here, but I also don't want it to look like I'm trying to dodge it. The disciples come to him and say, how did this happen? Right? Logical question. 
hey, you just spoke to a tree and it died. How did, how did that happen? And Jesus says to them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you would not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Add this to the list of verses that have been hijacked and taken out of context as maybe more than any other one. Especially by certain um, movements among the so-called church. Not the least of which is the word of faith and the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Jesus says to them, um, you, you can do more than this. And the example he gives, and it's, I would argue, and I think the scriptures are clear, this is a hyperbolic statement Jesus is showing here. You can say to this mountain, go into the sea, and it will, if you pray in faith. Now, one, Jesus doesn't say, if you say to a mountain, he says to this mountain. Context would either be the Mount of Olives or Mount Zion where, where the temple sat. I would argue the latter, seeing what we're coming out of, especially seeing what's going to come of the temple when it is indeed cast down. But Jesus is not literally teaching here, say to a mountain and it will crumble down. I don't, I don't think. Because one, we never see anybody in Scripture do that. Um, and it, it, Paul even uses the same hyperbolic language in 1 Corinthians 13 when he's speaking of love, right? Jesus is also not saying here that you just ask anything. And as long as you believe it, that I'm going to give it to you enough, that I'm obligated, here you go. Because that would make zero sense. One, with the rest of Scripture and Jesus' teaching. Two, we've got to keep in mind James 4, 2 and 3, where James says, you have not because you ask not, and you ask and don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives because you want it for your own selfishness. And, and also, if you look at the rest of what happens in the lives of the apostles, if this is truly some name it and claim it, you just believe it enough and say whatever you want to say, and as long as you have faith enough, you'll get it. They must have had terrible faith. Because they were all martyred. Minus John. Paul speaks of not having enough to eat, being beaten. You would think if this meant just, hey, just genie in a bottle, say the magic words, and you get your, you get your token. They would have prayed themselves out of some situations. But their prayer wasn't that. Their prayer was, Give us strength and faith to continue in this. It seems Jesus is indicating and using hyperbolic language here to show the power of faith in praying to accomplish the work of the kingdom in producing its fruit. This isn't some genie in a bottle, ask God for the new car, and he's Oprah, and you get a car, and you get a car, and you get a car. This is Jesus teaching them maybe even tying back to what he was teaching at the end of 19. I've sent you out to do this work, and with man this seems impossible. But with God all things are possible, so whatever you ask in prayer, believe it, and I'll give it to you to accomplish the work and produce the fruit of the kingdom. So Jesus showing this through an actual event of cursing this fig tree, 
then goes, is challenged his authority by the Pharisees. Um, they come in. I'll give the Reader's Digest version of what's happening here. They say, um, by what authority are you doing this and who gave you that authority? And Jesus, knowing their intentions, said, I'll answer that if you answer my question. John's baptism, is it from God or from man? And they gather around and they say, ah, no matter which answer we give here, we're in trouble. Because if we say from God, he's going to say, well, why don't you believe him? And if we say from man, the people may kill us because they thought John was a prophet. So they come back to Jesus. And they say, we don't know. And Jesus says, well, then I'm not going to answer your question either. Right. But the premise of that, I would argue, is them showing and recognizing this authority of Jesus over these things. And him acting as one who has authority. But Jesus flows out of this questioning with them with this idea of authority. And he continues this idea of fruitfulness among those of the kingdom. And he says, what do you think? Look at verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son and he said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Jesus gives a parable. A man with two sons, and he goes to the first one. Son, go to work. And the son's response was, is, nope, not going to do it. But then what does the son do? He changes his mind, he repents of his disobedience to the father, and he goes to work. The second son, father goes to him, go to the vineyard. Yes, father, I'll go. And what does he do? I don't know, but it wasn't go to the vineyard. So we have one who gave no show of obedience and yet then produced the fruit of obedience. And we have one who gave all the show of being the model, obedient, perfect son and yet gave zero fruit of actual obedience. Again, tying back to what's going on in the temple, tying back to what we've just seen with the fig tree, now he gives it this parable of two sons. You've got one who initially gave no show, no leaves of the tree, so to speak. But then his repentance produced the fruit of obedience. Then you've got the other whose outward expression was obedience to the Father, but whose inward heart was anything but. And they even acknowledge this. I don't, I don't think at this point they're even getting what Jesus is trying to get at with them. They said, which one of these two did the will of the Father? The first one. You're right. Not the one who said he would do it, but the one who actually did it. And in this we see two warnings. One, or a warning and a, and a hope. One, mere outward expression 
of devotion to God and obedience to Him means nothing without actual devotion to God and obedience to Him. We can be the, the second son who has all the right words and I'll do this for God and I'll do this for God and I'm going to do this. If you don't actually do it, if you're not actually following Him, then outward words mean you're not actually doing the will of the Father. You're just looking as one who's going to do the will of the Father, but not actually doing it. And then there's a hope and a comfort in this. For the one who has heard the call of God, who's heard the call to repent and believe, heard the call to follow Him and said, no, I'm not going to do it. There's the hope of knowing that with repentance and obedience, we're actually producing the fruit of the kingdom. While an initial no is not applauded here, they're not applauding the son for saying to the father no and being disrespectful. The point is, he actually was the one who was obedient because he actually did it. Likewise, you may be one who has looked at the kingdom and looked at the call of God and looked at God himself and said, no, I will not. You've heard it sung and proclaimed and read already this morning. Come ye sinners, poor and needy. For He is gracious to forgive as long as there is breath in your lungs and you hear Him and there is a softening of the heart, then walk in obedience to Him. Believe upon Him and produce the fruit of the kingdom that is produced in you by the Spirit. And Jesus in this shows and rebukes back and shows the, the, the very fact of the Pharisees that they are the, the second son who did not do the will of the Father. And he says, Truly I say to you, tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. They were the first son. The prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners, they're the ones who said, I won't go. I'm not going to do what you asked me to do. I'm going to rebel against your authority. But then these are the ones who repented and came into the kingdom and did the will of the Father. And Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, you're the one who says you're going to do it and you're not producing the fruit of the kingdom. And even after you saw what God was doing among those who had initially rejected Him and now He's bringing them in, even now you won't change your minds and follow Him. Again, showing this distinction between this outward manifestation of mere worship and true obedience and fruit-producing worship. So then Jesus gives another parable. Look at verse 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the, for the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. And again he sent other servants, more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. 
When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their season. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And this was the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So now Jesus gives the parable of a vineyard. Not coincidental he used the idea of a vineyard when especially flowing out of this idea of the fruitlessness of israel and pointing more pointedly to the pharisees for indeed israel has been referred to as god's vineyard yahweh's vineyard multiple times in the old testament most pointedly being isaiah 5 1 through 8 where it even speaks of this idea of of the lord putting in the wine press and putting in a tower and guarding his vineyard so Jesus gives this parable of a, of a master who owns a vineyard, yet he's in a distant land, and he leases it out, share crops it to these farmers who would produce the fruit, but yet pay him a portion of it in, in their rent to him. So he sends some of his servants to go and collect the fruit. They beat them, they kill them, they stone another. And then he sent more servants. They did the same thing. These servants, in, in this analogy, again, Jesus pointing back to this vineyard of Israel, these servants would have been the prophets. Those who the Lord had sent to call Israel back, to produce in them the fruit, to call them back to obedience and worship. And we see their response to the prophets was these very things. But then finally in the, in the story, this parable, you can see it building up. Finally he sent his son to them saying, they'll respect my son. But when the son shows up, they don't treat him any better. They drag him out of the vineyard and they kill him so that they can get his inheritance. Likewise, Jesus being the son who was sent to bring in the fruit of his kingdom. And they threw him out of the city and killed him. And here's the part that I don't know if it should make me chuckle, but it always makes me chuckle in this, this parable. Jesus asked the question, now when therefore the owner comes back, what's he going to do to these people? And their response is, these, he's going to put these wretches to a miserable death. And what makes me chuckle is that is like, you're right, but you don't realize you're the one. It brings me back to David in 2 Samuel where... He's had the affair with Bathsheba and he's killed Uriah. And Nathan comes to him and he tells him this story of this man with his ewe lamb. And David hears it and he's indignant. This man, the one who'd done this, deserves to die and let him pay back fourfold. And what David's right, his indignation's right. But then what does Nathan come to him and say? You're the man. David, when he hears a story about what he did, sees the injustice and is rightly drawn to this just reaction of what should happen in the story. Yet, 
refusing to see the reality of that very story playing out in his own life. Likewise, these Pharisees hear this story of one who's rejected the landowner, rejected the master of the vineyard. In mere days before they're going to take Jesus out of the city and kill him like the people of the parable did to the son of the master, they're blinded to the reality that this is them. And their response is right. These wretches should be put to a miserable death. They just don't see that they're the wretches. We have a propensity in our own lives to see the injustice in a situation of another and yet to see that same reality true of us. Or to use Jesus' terms from another teaching, um, we can easily spot the speck in another's eyes when we have the log of the same source growing out of our own. We are so quick to be blinded to the reality of the sin that is in our own life, which this is a side note, which is why we need each other, why we need the church, to help point those things out to us, to help us walk in obedience. But Jesus, coming out of that, they've, they've rightly proclaimed, I would argue, these wretches should be put to a miserable death and, and give the vineyard to another people that will actually produce the fruit and give it to the master. And then Jesus looks at them and, and quotes again from Psalm 118, just as the people did singing of, um, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Now, Jesus quoting from the same section of Psalm 18, speaking of the Messiah, the salvation that would come from the Lord. He says, have you never read in the scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in our eyes. The fruit they were not producing was believing in the cornerstone that God had sent to be the Messiah to save them. And Jesus says, therefore I tell you, the kingdom will be taken away from you and giving to a people producing its fruit. Taken away from the Son who said He would obey the Father and didn't and given to the one who initially said He would not and now is producing obedience. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The ultimate fruit of the kingdom that is the source of all of the fruit to be produced is this. Are we believing in obedience upon the Son of Christ or the Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, to be the one He said He was and to save us and to redeem us? Do we believe that He is a sufficient Savior to save us from the wrath of God that is to come, to redeem us from our sins? Because Jesus goes back to that. Are we rejecting the cornerstone and therefore being broken upon it and crushed by it? Or are we believing upon the cornerstone and resting upon Him and building upon Him in this, the idea of the cornerstone being there and producing the fruit of the kingdom that flows from the fruit of faith? And then in verse 45, the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable and they perceived He was speaking about them. They perceived rightly. 
but it's not this them. It's not as if we can read this and think, oh, the Pharisees. We likewise are in danger of going through emotion, of evoking the name of God, participating in a man-made production of the worship of God, sitting in a pew and going to Bible studies And yet our hope and our trust not actually being one that produces the fruit of the faith in Christ and fruit of obedience unto Him. And what is this fruit of the kingdom? We've talked about that a lot of this idea of fruit and the fruit of the kingdom. What is this fruit of the kingdom? Quickly, just looking at that briefly. One, again, first and primary, I would argue, is faith in Christ. That the fruit of the kingdom is primarily and, and first off, faith in the Messiah, faith in the cornerstone. Because without that, none of the other fruits will actually be produced in a way that is of the kingdom. And this faith in the cornerstone will produce the fruit of, a, of repentance and fruit in keeping with repentance. Again, Matthew 3, verse 8. And then this fruit of the kingdom of those who are by the Spirit producing the fruit of faith and repentance will produce the fruit of holiness by the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. We see the fruit that the Spirit produces in us. So the application for this one to me is, is, is really just one pointed. We can make it more than that, but we won't. Examine yourself. Not in some morbid, overly introspective, i got to see if I've done enough to have this fruit. If so, you've missed the point of the fruit. But examine yourself. Is there truly fruit of the kingdom in you? Is there truly the, the, the fruit of faith, of resting and trusting and clinging, complete in thee, in Christ Jesus? He alone is our hope. He alone is our righteousness. He alone is our salvation. Is there fruit in you of holiness and growing sanctification? Not perfection, but growing sanctification and the fruit of obedience and holiness in you. Is your life marked by the fruit of repentance? Or are you the fig tree that has a lot of leaves, has a lot of show, And produces no fruit. Are you the son who gives the outward manifestation of yes we'll go. And actually doesn't follow the will of the father. Are you the one who in faith produced by the spirit. Sees the fruit of the spirit in you. And again. We need each other in this as well. I think part of that examining ourselves is to go to others that we trust and we love. Do you see the fruit grow? Do you see evidence of the fruit of the kingdom growing in me? What are areas you see that's not producing fruit in me? 
So today, hear the, the warning and the call and the goodness of the king. Those who produce fruit are those of the kingdom. And those who do not are not. Today, see the goodness of the Messiah, King of the kingdom. Believe upon him. Rest upon him. Not in mere outward expression, but in fruit-producing faith. Would you pray with me? Well, Father in heaven, we see through the teachings of Jesus that it is those who are producing the fruit of the kingdom who are of the kingdom. And Father, we also see and acknowledge and know that this fruit is not produced by man-made effort. That left in our flesh, we can deceive ourselves and not see the reality that we are the wretches who have cast away the Son. Father, I pray that you would Give us eyes to see um, for those who are in you, who are of the kingdom. Father, give us eyes to see, not in a way that boasts in us, but, but in a way that leads us to worship of you. Help us see the fruit that is in us, that we can be um, more fruitful for the kingdom. We would not wrestle with, with whether or not we are apart, but we see the fruit of faith and we see the fruit of obedience in us. Father, for those who have either an outright rejection or maybe even through an outward show of saying yes, they would follow you but not actually doing so. I pray that today you would bring conviction. You would open their eyes to see that they would cling to the cornerstone of Christ and in Him be saved. And in so produce fruit that would glorify you. It's in Christ we pray these things. Amen.